I'll ask you to just show me a little bit of grace this morning in the sense that I'm trying to run the slides while preaching, okay? So um, Stephen had somewhere to be this morning. Usually Janie would fill in. She's doing nursery this morning. Donnie was going to be up there, but I thought, you know what, if I can do this, I want Donnie to be able to sit with Kim. So I I told him to go ahead and sing with the choir and be down here. So I'm going to be running it. There's not as much as normal. That's why I'm okay running it. There's not going to be as much flipping as maybe we did last week in all different portions of Scripture. So just bear with me. But we are going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting in John chapter 12 this morning, a passage. Many of you are probably familiar with the story, but um, I think it'll be helpful for us. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us together to worship you, and we ask that our worship would be affected by this passage this morning. That as we see worshiping, worship taking place here in this passage, that it would affect our hearts and stir us by your Spirit to have a desire to worship you more and to have a desire for our worship to expand, not just in how often we do it, but in the way in which we do it, the amount of our heart and mind that are actually participating in the worship. So work in us this morning by your word, Father. Help us to see more clearly who Jesus is and who you are, and may that resound in our hearts and stir us to worship you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have probably faced situations in life where you're at the brink of losing someone that you love. And when that moment comes, we often take the time to spend with that person. And usually, if possible, to do whatever we can possible to let that person know how valuable they are to us. We may sit with them if they're not able to go anywhere. We may sit and just, by words, try to describe some of the value that they hold to us. If it is possible to, for them to move or go somewhere, we may take them on a special sort of vacation, some sort of dream trip that they had always wanted to do. The Make-A-Wish Foundation has taken this to extravagant lengths, offering trips and meetups for families to have this final experience that they could have never imagined being able to have. The whole point, though, is we want this person to have some sort of understanding of just how much they mean to us, right? Our passage this morning is the account of Mary, who we met a few weeks ago, doing this exact thing for Jesus, It's clear by the clues in the passage that Jesus' death is coming soon. We just saw last week at the end of chapter 11 that the religious leaders have made the decision that they are going to kill Jesus. They told everyone, when it comes close to Passover, keep an eye out for him and let us know if you find him. This morning we find out that it's just six days before Passover now. 
Last week, Jesus went out towards the wilderness to lay low for a while because everyone was seeking to kill him. But this morning, he comes back to the town of Bethany, which we found out just again a few weeks ago is just two miles away from Jerusalem. Something has shifted here. Jesus is now getting incredibly close to the cross. In fact, when Jesus went to Bethany the first time to raise Lazarus from the dead, his disciples even expected to die with him. So even they grasp the depths of this hostility that's waiting for Jesus. But before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, Mary is going to offer an extravagant act of worship towards him. And it's disturbing to some of those watching one person in particular. But she desires for Jesus to know just how much she values him. That's what we need to be asking ourselves as we study the passage this morning. Do we value Jesus in the same way that we see Mary doing so in the passage? So let's go ahead and read it this morning. We're in John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the family of Lazarus wants to offer Jesus a special dinner, probably because of what he's done in raising Lazarus from the dead. This has completely changed their entire family now. They have their brother back. So as he comes back now to the town of Bethany, they have this special meal for him. We learn from the other Gospels of Matthew and Mark that also include this story, but give us some different details, that it it probably didn't happen in Lazarus' home, in Martha and Mary's home, but it probably happened in Simon the leper's home, actually. He was from Bethany as well. But here in John, we see all three members of the family doing something, right? Martha is serving, just like you'd expect her to be from other passages in Scripture. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. And then we come to Mary. 
and her display of worship to Jesus. And this is what we want to focus on here for the first point that you'll have there in your bulletin on that outline. The first point, the extravagance of your worship springs from how valuable you believe Jesus is. Mary comes to Jesus with this ointment, this perfume. Now, in the other Gospels, we find out she pours it on his head down to his feet, but John focuses here just on his feet, right? Notice verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Why would John only mention his feet? You see, John is trying to help us to see this as an act of worship. It's not that anointing his head doesn't means it's not worship. It just means that John's trying to really emphasize to us the humility of Mary as she comes to the feet of Jesus. Do you remember what we saw way back when John the Baptist was talking about Jesus? What did he say about him? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Feet. Or if you jump to John chapter 13, what does Jesus do on his last night with his disciples? Washes their feet. Right? There's this feet element. There's even this feet kind of theme in John here that it's this place of humility. Jesus humbles himself to wash his disciples' feet. Here, Mary humbles herself to anoint the feet of Jesus. She pours this ointment out, and then she begins to wipe it up with her hair. Think about that. For this culture, Mary is saying, even the cleanest part of my body isn't worthy to touch the dirtiest part of his. The hair is the cleanest part for this society, and even the cleanest part of her isn't worthy to touch the dirtiest part of Jesus. She's making a statement of how valuable she truly finds Jesus to be. After all, isn't that what worship is? That it's our lives displaying what is it that we find to be of utmost value to us. Isn't that what an act of worship is? We're displaying what we consider to be the most valuable things. But what makes it an even more extravagant act of worship is when we find out from Judas that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, how much is that? Basically, one year's wages. They received a denarius for one day's work. It was a day's wage since they probably wouldn't have worked on the Sabbath and certain festivals they wouldn't have worked during, 300 days of work would have been about a year's worth of work. So consider that in our present day, a year's worth of wages spent on one container of ointment or perfume, and then all of it dumped out on one person at one single moment. It's no wonder that John includes the detail there in verse 3, right? The house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. We don't know whether this ointment was a family heirloom that had been passed down, or maybe that the family of Lazarus had pooled their money together and they said, we want to do this for Jesus when he comes. 
whichever way, what, however they came up with it, it's clear that this is extravagant. This goes beyond the, the normal for this culture of an act of worship. What to us would be tens of thousands of dollars all poured out on Jesus in a single moment. So why does Mary do this? Why use so much of something that's so expensive in just one moment, pour it all out on Jesus? Because she's making a statement that in this moment, she finds Jesus to be of infinite value. Judas questions her. He wonders, has she made the right evaluation here? Now I want us just to look at what Jesus says in verse 8 in response to that. We'll get more into verse 8 later, but... He says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Judas pretends to value the poor, but Jesus says, the poor are always available to you, but I'm not. So Jesus is saying here that the evaluation Mary has made is correct, that she's right in what she has done. That his value is exceedingly greater in this moment because they're running out of time to display their worship to him. This isn't to mean that once Jesus dies that he's not allowed to be worshipped anymore, but they're running out of time to display their worship before he goes to the cross. So Jesus says she's made the right evaluation in this extravagant display of worship. And when we get to the end of the passage, we find out that there's someone else in the family that's going to have a price to pay. Lazarus. The religious leaders now want to kill Lazarus, take his very life from him because of his witness of what Jesus has done. The extravagance of our worship springs from first, how valuable do we really believe Jesus is? We make these sorts of decisions all the time in our normal lives, don't we? Think about it with children. Whether it's your kids or your grandkids, we often want to shower our kids with gifts and affection, don't we? To let them just know how much we really love them, how much we value them. We want them to know how loved they really are, right? That's why some grandparents go absolutely overboard when it comes to Christmas and birthdays. Maybe some of you in here are those grandparents. But my friends, how much more deserving is Jesus of our worship than any child or person or thing in this world? And I'm not just talking about buying gifts now. Although I do believe the way we handle our money is a display of our worship. But just in general, ask yourself the question, how much do you worship Jesus? Remember the other stories of Mary that we see? When Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead, what did Mary do? Fell at his feet. Or that other popular story that's not in this gospel, but many of us know, right? When there's Mary and Martha in the house, Martha's busy serving, what does Mary do? She chooses the good portion of sitting where? At Jesus' feet. Everywhere you look in Scripture, Mary's got this posture of worship towards Jesus. Is the same true of us? And it's not just any worship, but this is extravagant worship, 
right? Worship that causes those who aren't worshiping to take a second look and say, what's going on there? How far would you be willing to go in your life to display your worship to Jesus and how valuable he is? Would you give up your life savings? Would you quit your job and go into missions? Would you be the black sheep of your family for trying to share the gospel with all those who don't believe? Or just consider here at our worship services when we gather together, how much of your heart, your mind, your voice does Jesus get when we sing and pray and look at the word together? If we can't even give Jesus extravagant worship when we gather together at our church service, how will we ever do it in our daily lives? Extravagant worship says, I give it all for Jesus. Amen? Because no matter how crazy it seems, you truly believe Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Even if it causes other people around you to be bothered by your worship. That's what we see with Judas and see at your second point there. The extravagance of your worship will disturb those who lack devotion to Jesus. Now, in the other Gospels, it says the disciples objected. But here, John gives us some insight that it's really Judas who objected. Now, the other disciples may have agreed or kind of had some similar questions of, could we have done something for some other people with this money from this ointment? But Judas is the one who states it, John tells us. And we gain some understanding here about Judas. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas lacks devotion to Jesus. Even though he's one of his disciples, after all, Judas is about to betray Jesus for a lot less than 300 denarii, for only 30 pieces of silver instead. So he objects to this act of extravagant worship. He's disturbed by it. But notice what his objection is in verse 5. It's masked by social concern, right? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He is pretending to care about the poor. That seems to be a group of people that Jesus cares about, right? So instead of offering this ointment to Jesus, we should sell it and take care of those people. Now we know Judas doesn't really care about the poor. He's just using it as a mask for his own lack of commitment But this is a reminder for us that we need to be aware, be discerning about the disguises of things like this in our own lives. We should not be advocates for social concerns such as being against racism or uh, being for the life in the womb. We shouldn't be for those things unless we also are advocating Jesus as the solution to those problems. Or as a church, we shouldn't be content to just say, 
we're just going to meet social needs of people. We're just going to pay utility bills for people. Or we're just going to, like we did recently, we're just going to give away backpack supplies for kids for school and then neglect the act of worshiping Jesus. When we attempt to be so-called good Christians in these social causes, but never attempt to give Jesus worship, then we reveal about ourselves exactly what's revealed about Judas in verse 6. Judas only cared about helping himself to the money in the bag. His social mask was a disguise for him to hide his own selfish motivation. And the same is exactly true of us when we try to be good moral people, but never seek to give extravagant worship to Jesus. We reveal that all we really want is we want the world to look at us and say we're good people, or we want to be able to look at the mirror and say we're good people. But when it comes to the thought of giving Jesus this kind of worship that the rest of the world who doesn't worship him is going to be bothered by, we also are disturbed by it. If our only goal is for us to look good, we're going to be disturbed by these extravagant acts of worship. Judas responds to Mary's worship here like maybe some of you respond at the thought or the sight of blood, right? Some people just can't handle seeing it. It's repulsive. Some of you just hearing me talk about it are starting to feel queasy a little bit right now. But that's how those who lack devotion to Jesus respond when they see an extravagant act of worship to Jesus. So I want you to ask yourself, am I the one who's worshiping and disturbing those who lack devotion, or am I the one who's being disturbed by seeing other people's worship? How would you respond if someone at your job just straightforwardly started sharing the gospel with your coworkers? Would you join in, or would you step away? Or what if someone came into our singing part of our service and started raising their hands and dancing around? Now, I'm not advocating for attention-seeking or unbiblical kind of behavior in worship, okay? But David danced before the Lord as they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and his wife despised him for it. I'm just asking... Would you be disturbed by someone in extravagant worship? You don't have to dance or wave your hands to give true extravagant worship. You can do it with your voice. You can do it with a heart that has its greatest desire is to see Jesus receive glory. I'm just asking you to consider, are you the one worshiping or are you the one disturbed by worship? Judas is a reminder here for us that proximity to Jesus is not equal with worship to Jesus. He has spent three years following him. One of the twelve, closer than almost anyone else as far as physical location to Jesus. But when it came to worshiping Jesus, he scoffed at the thought of it. You also can be in close proximity to Jesus. You can come to church. You can pray every day. You can read your Bible every day. You can volunteer in the church. You can donate towards something that the church is doing. You can do all that without ever truly worshiping Jesus. There was a whole lot of money that went to a lot of good causes in Jesus' ministry that went through the hands of Judas. But he still 
when it came to seeing Mary's worship, ridiculed her instead of joining her? Are you simply in close proximity to Jesus, or are you worshiping him? What we find when Jesus responds to Judas' objections is that Jesus has a strong view about what's going on here. He isn't indifferent about what Mary is doing or about how Judas is disturbed by it. You see your last point there. Jesus rebukes those who lack devotion and approves those who extravagantly worship. You see, because our world tries to convince us that in order for Jesus to be truly loving, he doesn't really need to care about anyone's devotion to him or to what he says. As long as you're trying to be decent human beings, that's all Jesus really cared about. If that's the case, then when Judas brings this idea up of giving money to the poor, then Judas should get a stamp of approval. If all Jesus cared about was just, yeah, be decent human beings to each other, Jesus is going to approve of what Judas just mentioned. That's what the world wants us to believe in. That's the Jesus the world wants us to see. But look at what he actually says in verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Judas, let her be. That's a rebuke. That's not an approval of what he just said. That's not an agreement about his care for the poor, which we know isn't really a care for the poor at all. It's a care about himself. Jesus blatantly tells Judas he needs to leave her alone. He is not to question her extravagant worship. In fact, he is to let her keep this worship towards Jesus. Nothing should be done that's going to pull her away from this. Now, it's a hard verse to understand a little bit because they're in the second half. Leave her alone so that she she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, what's the it? What is the it, right? Well, originally, we would think the ointment, right? The it is the ointment, but she just poured the ointment out. So how is she supposed to keep it for the day of Jesus' burial if she just ended up pouring all of it out on Jesus' feet and wiping it up, right? This is where some of the other Gospels come in to be helpful because the other Gospels say that she anointed Jesus in preparation for his burial, right? So it's, it could be that this is just kind of a weird translation that it really means she has kept it until this day for his burial or preparation for his burial. Or there's also the possibility that what Jesus is talking about here isn't the ointment, but when he says it, it's her worship. He's saying, let her keep this posture. Let her keep this attitude of worship towards me. Judas, leave her alone until the day of my burial. Let her continue to worship me. Don't pull her away from that. Even if we don't know exactly what it means, the point still is the same, right? Because even if it does mean the ointment, the ointment's a representation still of her worship. So either it's her worship or it's something that represents her worship. What she is doing is right. Her extravagant worship is good. Judas is rebuked for questioning it. 
He is to leave her alone and let her continue in this act of worship. So he's rebuking Judas, but that also means Jesus is approving of Mary's act of worship, which is what we see in verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We already looked at this verse once, but it's a reminder for us here again that Jesus is approving of what Mary has determined to be most valuable and to give her extravagant worship to. Jesus, the next day, goes into Jerusalem. Within the week, he's going to be dead, crucified on the cross for our sins, This is Mary's opportunity to show him just how valuable she finds him to be. So she pours out a year's worth of wages on him. And Jesus says, it was good and right for her to do this. If you write a check for a large sum of money, but you fail to sign it, it's pretty meaningless, right? I know there's forgeries and things like that, but generally speaking, it's pretty meaningless. The power rests on the owner of the account saying, signing and saying, this amount of money is valid. What we see in this very moment is Jesus signs off on Mary's worship. He says, this is right, this is valid, this is good. It's not any longer Mary versus Judas. It's now Jesus versus Judas. Mary has Jesus standing in her corner saying, leave her alone. This is good and right. I'm not always going to be here. In fact, within a week, I'm going to be dead. Let her show how valuable I am to her. And you know what? Jesus will say the same thing about your act of extravagant worship. Now, I know there are biblical guidelines to worship, right? We don't just do whatever we want and call it worship. But if you are boldly and wholeheartedly worshiping Jesus according to Scripture, you can rest assured that Jesus is also standing in your corner. When others look at you funny and call you crazy for your worship, you can know that Jesus is sitting there saying, leave them alone, back off. But also notice that what Jesus says at the end here to Judas has now changed. He says here, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. All right, that's because Jesus is about to head to the cross. There's going to be a moment in time where the disciples no longer have Jesus physically alive with them. But we live on the other side of it. We know the cross and the resurrection. And what does Jesus say when he is about to ascend into heaven and he sends his disciples to go make more disciples? What's he tell them? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now there's a shift that's happened for us. Jesus now is always with you. And guess what? Jesus is still always the one worthy of our utmost worship. So we, for all of our days, because he's always with us and always worthy of worship, are always to be extravagantly worshiping him. Amen? Brothers and sisters, I want to end here with two questions. First, do you worship Jesus?
I know that sounds like a simple question, but it's an essential question. What we see in this passage is that we only give our worship to that which we believe is valuable enough to deserve it. And by worship, I don't mean did you just attend Sunday morning service, but when you're at that service, are your heart and mind actually centered upon Jesus? being the one who deserves all your praise, all your attention, all of your love. And then does that focus, that centering on Jesus, remain throughout the rest of your week? Your worship should be a daily, hourly act of continuing to center yourself around Jesus as the one who is of utmost value. If worship isn't taking place in your life, You have to ask yourself, have I truly believed in who Jesus is? But then the second question is for those of you who said yes to that first one, who said, yes, I do find myself worshiping Jesus. The second question, how extravagant is your worship? Mary goes beyond the norm here. She spends a year's worth of wages in one moment on Jesus. It should make us ask the question, how much of our lives does Jesus really have? How much of your time would you give up for him? How much persecution would you be willing to take for him? When you worship Jesus, when we gather together and worship, how much of yourself are you really giving to Jesus in your worship? If we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he is as valuable as we claim him to be, our worship should be breaking all sorts of norms. I'm not saying the norms of Scripture, right? I'm not saying go outside the boundaries of the Word, but it should cause people who aren't worshiping Jesus, people who lack devotion to Jesus, to look at us and say, what are they doing? That's strange. That's really odd. How do they... How do they give him all of that, all of their praise, all of their love in the midst of everything that's going on? How is it that they have peace in the midst of these fearful times? How is it that they actually long for the day when they do face physical death because they get to be with Jesus? How can they hope for that? It should look massively out of the ordinary to the people around us. So my hope for us is that we will not only worship Jesus every single day of our lives, but that we will worship him extravagantly in ways where we are committing all that we have to him because we see him for who he is. Because we see him as worthy of all of our praise, all of our love. We see him as our crucified, and resurrected Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we know how easily our hearts seek value in things that are not you. It is so easy for us 
to fall into idolatry. may look different than the idols of the world of the Old Testament, but it's idolatry nevertheless. Help us. Help us to see Jesus as the one who is worthy of all of our honor, all of our praise. May we hold him to be the thing of the person of utmost value. May our worship towards him not just happen often, but may it be extravagant. May we not tone it down for the sake of the fact that people around us might look at us funny. Help us, God. Help our hearts to be changed and value Jesus more than we did when we came in this morning. May Mary be an example for us of what our worship should look like. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.